Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Sisters, siblings, welcome to Penn's Sunday School, starring Penn Gillette. My name is Michael Ludo. Matt Donnelly, Redrich, Penn and I are broadcasting from our separate homes in Las Vegas. In this episode, Penn's going to give us a book report. Listen up. I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up! Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes! Now let's go win the sick playoffs! Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. <laughs> Instacart for the win. We'll talk about a real-life version of Lord of the Flies, and if we've got some time, we'll read some congregation email. Here he is preaching love! Mr. Pendulette. Yeah, this is Ben Breach and Love. I was I was I was distracted during the um, during the uh, intro there because I was reading over some viewer mail that I want to get to. But I'm here and I am uh, I'm preaching the love. And how is everyone doing? You doing okay? We're all loving. <laughs> good, good, good. We're receiving the love. Okay, uh, you know, uh, I'm looking over these uh, these uh, questions from uh, from people, and uh, uh, someone said that uh, that I was going to talk about the magic Christian, and I never did. You know, um, I think I've come to a point where I can admit that I do not like satire at all. Right. In any way, I don't like parody. I don't like satire. Uh, I don't like sarcasm. Um, in day-to-day life and discussions, it's kind of sort of okay, but as an art form, I mean, I have to admit, I do not like Dr. Strangelove. I mean, is that a movie you like? Nope. I would say like uh, when I was young, and especially in college, you know, we used to do a lot of things that we considered satire with our comedy group on campus, you know? Yeah. And I think there's such a key element of this uh, where you have to see the majority of people agreeing with you while some stodgy assholes in power don't. Like, you have to kind of feel like you're addressing something the masses don't get to because they can't speak openly about something or feel like they can't do something to feel like you're getting a point across. And the key to that is a really of an us versus them feeling. Yeah. I remember reading Steve Martin's book 
and him talking about how when he was young, he used to think making a joke about anything was like the, the, he was braver than the older comedians and he could say whatever he wanted. And then realizing it got harder and harder to joke about taboo things because he knew friends who got cancer or lost a loved one or whatever. And so suddenly being in a, in a gleefully inappropriate didn't, he didn't, didn't give him the same edge as a comedian, you know? Yeah, and what Howard Stern has always said was he couldn't be friends with anybody. Yeah. We could no longer make fun of them. But, you know, I had a discussion with uh, Damien of um, OK Go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is way, way back. This is probably 15 years ago. Yeah, we need to clarify you felt this way since pre-Trump. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah this is it's, yeah. It has nothing to do with right. the current situation. No, not at all. Um and uh, I felt this way, um, I think I felt this way all the way back to high school, but it was very hard to admit. As, as I've said many times, um, cynical always looks smart. It always looks smart mm-hmm. to say, uh, ah, you know, they're just, they're just in it for the money. They're just doing this. They're just doing that. And it always makes you look like you have the inside track and you're the grown-up. And you're always wrong. Yeah. You know, the the cynical view is always wrong. It's always empty. It's always based on hate. It always misses empathy. And um, I've always felt that way. You know, I've talked to Bill Maher a lot. And Bill Maher proudly calls himself a cynic, says that's the way people should be. That's the accurate way to see the world. Cynicism is what it's all about. And um, I do not agree. I think that cynicism is, uh, is the easiest and you always look tough and always look smart. When I see two people discussing something and one person is taking the absolute low road on the way things are going and the other person's more uh, trying to grab at a Pollyanna uh, end, I, I always think, I always think that the, uh, the cynical person is hurting their heart. They're doing damage to themselves and to the world around them. And satire and irony, you know, um, uh, Letterman, you know, not really a sentence on there that isn't ironic on the old Letterman show. Right. And Letterman is brilliant. He does not do the, the irony because he wants to look smart. He is smart. And he's the best at what he does that there's ever been. But when OK Go came out, and they did that first video. I don't know what year that was. Not the one on the treadmills, but the one where they're just dancing. Mm-hmm. And they got, I think it's Damien's sister. Maybe it's Tim's sister, but all the, the only ones I know from there are Damien and Tim. They don't even know well. Uh, I don't know them. I mean, I know best. I don't know them well at all. Um, but I don't know the others, even Handshake. And um, one of their sisters is a choreographer. And she... Um, she choreographed that dance for them and they worked really hard to learn it and they did it the best they could without a wink and without like, oh, this is stupid and without putting on stupid costumes. I mean, they were just hanging out there naked, you know, just as as naked and as open as they could be with nothing clever or cute or ironic or cynical about it. They were just dancing to their song. 
and doing the best they could. And they weren't surrounded by, you know, models who were paid to look good. They weren't surrounded by dancers, you know. They were just there doing a dance that their sister had choreographed. And that was so, so powerful to me and to the world. I mean, it's yeah. certainly caught on. Everybody knows it. And I remember talking to uh, Damien about that video. And I was trying to place it in uh, love and gentleness and sincerity and uh, I was going all around the world. And uh, Damien said, we try to do things with no irony. And I went, oh, that, that's really all you need to say, right? And then he said, it's the hardest thing in the world. Wow. It's the hardest thing in the world to do no irony whatsoever. Because irony is so safe and you look so smart and you can always say something without... And we see... We see everybody using this technique, but also Trump. Maybe I was kidding. Right. Some people say, you know, that idea of saying what you mean as clearly as you possibly can without a wink. And a lot of times when people are sitting around talking, they're judging each other on how funny that was, or whether there was a pun, or whether there was a turn, or whether there was a twist, whether there was clever banter, how much like uh, situation comedy it was. And when someone just speaks from their heart, everything else goes away. You know, and we had every clever video in the world. Every video with a ton of money behind it. And then a few guys in their backyard practicing and learning to do a dance in one take by themselves that their sister had worked on um, made the whole world crazy. Yeah. The whole world saw that beauty. And then uh, they continue to do it. OK Go continues to do these Rube Goldberg ones and the car one and the flying ones. And they work hard on an idea and try to do it as best as, as, best as they can. And when I look at the uh, Penn & Teller stuff, every time we've tried to do something in character or sarcastically or uh, uh, satirically, or ironically, it just doesn't feel right to us and the audience doesn't want it from us. I mean, it's very, very strange, but we do a magic act where we try to lie as little as possible. You know, I remember there's a thing I do in the show called The um, Psychic Comedian. And uh, the reason that's in the show is I was asked by my friend Mickey Lynn. He said to me, uh, what's the worst pitch you ever did? What was the biggest failure you ever did? And I was talking to him at a coffee shop, you know, this is whatever, 25 years ago. And I said, has to be the psychic comedian. I came out and tried to do this bit where I was making fun of psychics. And I was in character as a psychic, except my only power was being able to send and receive jokes. And the audience hated it. And I never got a groove on it. And I really believed there was something in it. And as I talked to him about it, um, I said, you know, the reason was I never let the audience in. I was always trying to be, you know, this is a gag I'm doing, and, you know, I'm really in character. Da, da, da. And uh, I said, what would happen if I tried to do that bit with sincerity? 
saying, I don't really have psychic powers. There's no such thing. But if you could do it with jokes, it would kind of look like this, wouldn't it? I'm not doing it. But instead of trying to present it as real and have the audience, you know, I know that you know that I know that you know that I know. And I called up Teller and said, or I guess it was our next meeting. I said, I think I want to try Psychic Comedian again. And it was one of the hardest Teller's ever laughed. You know, <laughs> you go into our past and you pick the worst bit we ever did. The worst bit we ever did. Now, Teller was kinder than that. He said, the worst bit you ever did. We did stuff together that was worse, but it wasn't true. <laughs> it was the worst bit we ever did in our career. And I would not give up. And we went back and did it again with sincerity. And uh, it, it's one of my favorite bits now. Yeah. I just love it. I love doing it. And uh, that's the change. And the Magic Christian, it's not often that I read satire, but the Magic Christian is satire. You know, Terry Southern, who wrote for Saturday Night Live and was one of the writers on Easy Rider, of all things. And uh, I think he also might have, I think he also did Strange Love. And it's about a really, really rich guy uh, finding out what money means. And I'm writing a book about that. My book, Random, is about a guy who's very, very wealthy. Um, and uh, boy, I just didn't like the satire part of it. I love the images, but I didn't like, I mean, I love the image of the boat, the Magic Christian itself. I love the image of eating parking tickets. I love the image of the, the whimsical aspect of it I really liked. But the part that was phony political, Right. I just didn't understand. I just understand it. It just didn't seem right. So I don't know. And with Doctor Strange, love it's too smug. Yeah, they're just too smug. But have you seen Failsafe? No, I don't think so. Failsafe is a movie done at the same time uh -huh. that is deals seriously with the same issue. I I feel like you go through phases when you start comedy. You remember, I remember being in junior high school and thinking that people that did puns were really funny. And then, you know, two years later going, God, I, I hate that. You know, yeah. it, 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 it's, it's part of the learning thing. I think you go through, some people get stuck in that smug phase because it's successful for them. Mm -hmm. And they don't move into the next level of comedy. Well, when you saw Colbert in character. Right. When Colbert was in character, I felt that the real person behind the character was more smug than the character. Yeah. That's what I felt. Right. It's interesting you bring both Letterman and Colbert up because I grew up on Letterman and I became very attracted to the device of satire mm -hmm. through Letterman. And then through the regression of the mean, we get Jon Stewart and Colbert and Bill Maher. And the intelligence goes away and the smugness comes in. And that's what killed it for me. Yes, yeah, smug is... You know, I remember when, um, what's his name? Uh, uh, the, the late, late show host now, the English guy. Um, Corden. James Corden. Um, remember when Bill Maher did the thing about fat people? Yes. yes. And uh, James Corden did an answer to it? Oh, yes. And James Corden had jokes in it. He had jokes in it. Yeah. But he was also really sincere. Yeah. He seems pretty sweet, yeah. And uh, well, James Corden, I've only met him. Yeah, I met him times. once, and he was just great. He's really, <laughs> Jesus. really nice. And really, also, really good at everything. Mm -hmm. You know, 
And to have him um, answer that with such, such compassion. I mean, in a couple funny lines, you know, which is, what do you say? We don't all get to exercise uh, as much as Bill Maher does. He gets to uh, do 4,000 calories a day just on being smug. <laughs> it was something like that. Yeah. It was a nice little turn. Um, so, uh, you know, Lloyd uh, wrote in about uh, Magic Christian and says, um, it's one of his favorite movies. The movie I found much better than the book. The movie has a playful quality. Although I got to tell you, it's weird for me. Um, Peter Sellers doesn't speak to me at all. Right. I know people love Peter Sellers, but man, you know, I mean, my uh, my father-in-law, I think his favorite movie is being there, which was nothing to me. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I don't know, something about uh, Peter Sellers... There's not a, uh, and I'm not talking about the fact that he did the, the Indian character that's so out of, uh, out of our sensibility now. Right. I mean, it is out of our sensibility now. You'd never allow it now, and probably shouldn't. But um, uh, it's not that. It's 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 characters always. I mean, not even to talk about why you'd make a movie out of Lolita when the whole thing is about the written word to me, um, but. Uh, uh, so the magic Christian. What's an answer to that? What's that? That he wants to do a sexy <laughs> thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, the magic Christian, when they have Raquel Welsh in her outfit with a whip, yeah, and the galley rowers all being topless women rowing the cruise ship, um, pretty hard to beat that. <laughs> Much sexier than Lolita by leaps. I see. I, when I read Lolita, I found nothing sexual about it. Uh, I found it just about the words. Yeah. Uh, it seemed like it seemed like almost a a poem, uh, almost divorced of ideas, or mostly an idea about the United States. You know, uh, Nabokov talking about a uh, you know speaking in a different language, not the language he was brought up with. Um, Doing that thing about English just seemed to, his enjoyment of the language was so great. And I didn't read Lolita for a long time because I said, I don't care the attraction of underage people. I just don't relate to. As you know, as I've said many times, the three most overrated things in the world, right? Um, You know, know, pickup trucks, banjo music, and teenage girls. Three things that I just go, I I don't know why you want to pick up truck. I don't know why you want to hear the banjo. Um, I guess Steve Martin can explain a little bit of the banjo to me. But pick up trucks and teenage girls, no one has been able to crack that code for me. I also, uh, I kind of want to talk about Letterman's irony. I mean, we're all trying to defend him anyway, so it's not like uh, we need this. But I think part of it was like which direction it points at, right? There's a layer that points the other way with irony, right? Um, that lets you kind of hedge your bets on an argument where I can point at you without having to defend anything on my own thing. Whereas Letterman's mm-hmm. ir- irony was like, he shouldn't be there. That was his irony. Is that like, he's not the guy you should give this talk show to. He's not the kind of person who gets this kind of platform. And I think that's where it pointed the other way of like, that's why you, Oh yeah. Like you, you, or any stage for that matter. Exactly. So like you rooted for him because of it. So the more inept yeah. he was at being a talk show host, the more you loved him for it. And of course, 
no one has ever been less than that. Right, exactly. I mean, it, was a, <laughs> it turns out it was an act indeed, but, uh, but, but that layer. Have you seen the Indiana-Ohio border thing on, the, on his meteorology chart? No. No. He's working for the weather cha- for uh, uh, NBC affiliate. As a this is back in the early, early before he made it, right? Right, right. Yeah. And the computer has failed to draw out the border between Indiana and Ohio correctly. <laughs> and it's all he could talk about the entire segment. <laughs> he's just, he, he's begging the newscast to fire him. The uh-huh. whole thing. <laughs> so a- any stage at all, it's the same deal for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doesn't belong anywhere. Yeah. So, uh, guys, has your morning routine changed lately? You see everybody still brushing their teeth? What's a morning? <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. I I actually went through a thing where I, I you know, like I said, I was trying to get my walks in and started to get hot, and I didn't want it to be an excuse to not go out. And also, I was feeling definitely in a rut, you know. Uh, and so, I started setting my alarm every morning an hour earlier than I was getting up, and I get up now an hour earlier and walk. Uh, to get it just mm-hmm. to start the day doing something. I just needed to feel like I had a phase two to this. <laughs> I needed to feel like there was yeah. n- that, I've, that I went through phase one of my quarantine to phase two. I have found that my morning routine is now absolutely sacrosanct. I mean, I floss and brush my teeth <laughs> and do all that stuff exactly at the same time in the same order. And uh, now we get everything delivered and we also get our toothbrushes delivered, right? We do the Quip thing. Yeah. 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 And uh, getting Quip in the mail, it was great before quarantine. Now it's, it's mandatory. Yeah. Yeah. I think actually on a larger scale, I should even to to even speak to listeners of our podcast and, and you know, I, I, we get mail from, we don't get mail from the majority of our listeners. So I don't think, People write in are speaking for the majority of listeners, but we get snotty mail about, especially some of our more, uh, our actually very pro-science opinions of how to handle this quarantine. Mm -hmm. We also (laughs) are naturally on the conservative end of it because we know show business is coming back last. Yeah. Like we know that we're not coming back until they figured it all out. So mm-hmm. that gives us a different vantage point looking at the economy yeah. and looking at the way things are going than the average person. It does. We, 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 we gave up long ago. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I want to get around to this. I want to get around to this because I want to talk about quip is what I'm trying to do. <laughs> I'm an idiot. No, that's fine. That's fine. I'm going to get around to there. But you know you're getting your toothbrush delivered in the mail. I do. I do. Hey, Matt. You know that. Matt, it's we're going to do an ad. My segue was so natural and comfortable. It was beautiful. Yeah, it was really nice. He didn't really see nice. it coming at all. Hit him no. with the side of the head. Oh. 75% of us use old, worn-out, ineffective toothbrushes. Do you have something to say about that, Matt Donnelly? Yeah, it's read, I read I read an editorial in the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> With good habits. Quip makes it easy by delivering all the oral care essentials you need to brush and floss better. The Quip electric toothbrushes time sonic vibrations with 30-second pulses to guide a dentist-recommended 
two-minute routine, and there's even a size-down version for children. And you get your toothpaste, everything all comes to you. Over three million happy customers practice good oral care easily and affordably with Quip starting at $25. And that's what you're using, isn't it, Matt? It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it is. And, and it's what you're using, isn't it, Michael Goodell? It definitely is, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you go to getquip.com slash pen. pen, right now, you'll get a free refill free. Your first refill fill free. Refill. That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash pen. pen. That's getquip.com slash P-E-N-N. Let me say that again. Yeah. Spelled getquip.com slash pen. pen. And I'll tell you, I love, I love those vibrating, uh, sonic toothbrush stuff. I love the And timer. the floss stuff and the timer. And of course, the carrying case, which you don't have to use as a carrying case. Just stick it on your mirror. Yeah. It's the greatest right. thing in the world. Brush your teeth right. Get in that groove. Brush your teeth right. You can do it with, uh, with Quip. Yeah, I got to get worse at getting into the commercials. <laughs> <laughs> just snuck I it in. literally thought you were like scanning your notes and you're like, your, your morning routine changed? I thought you were just looking for your next topic on your notes. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I'll just throw in this little notion to carry us over help. to the next topic. <laughs> well, you know, I think, I think they do. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the, did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Okay, let's say this. Now I am looking at my notes. No more rat videos. Yeah. You are well. bumming. You are <laughs> bumming Ready Rich. Stop it. I'm going to tie in uh, with uh, with the cynical thing directly with this. You know, um, it is so easy to say the world's going to hell in a handbasket and to talk about people. But I sent you this article uh, from The Guardian yes. about the real Lord of the Flies thing. Great. Now, Lord of the Flies is something we all read and we say, yeah, that's how people are. You put teenage boys on an island together, it's going to get brutal. It's going to get cruel. It's the uh, Stanford prison experiment. You know, boy, you say guard. And we know there's all sorts of trouble with that experiment. Right. Didn't end up proving what they say it proved. Um, <laughs> For a second, I was thinking, how is he possibly going to tie cynicism to quit? <laughs> <laughs> and they actually, we actually got to run the experiment. Yeah. Now, would someone who read the article more carefully than me tell the story? Sure, sure. Uh, six uh, kids in Nukualofa in Tonga. Uh, we're bored in town. Which just, is a place you... I've been, to. yeah, yeah. Beautiful spot. Great. 
Great spot. Um, they were bored. There was nothing going on in town. They decided they wanted to set their lives free. They stole a boat. The six of them set out and uh, brought themselves, you know, a bag of coconuts and some water, but no navigation equipment, and none of them knew much about boats. And so they went out, on, and on the first night, they fell asleep and got lost. And when they woke up the next day, they were adrift. And after a few days adrift, they came across an island. So these six boys... They, they they land on this island and it's uh they they hop off the boat and they're trapped there. It's fifteen months before anyone comes to save them. Fifteen months. Fifteen months in nineteen sixty five. Um, and here's the thing: it wasn't Lord of the Flies. They were cooperative. They were kind. They worked hard to help each other. They set up uh, routines for themselves to take care of their food and their water needs. Uh, they were lucky. Yeah, they, the water needs were really a big issue, right? They had to collect dew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, they happened to be in, in kind of a drought uh, period during these the time on the island they were there, and there's there's not a lot of water on a lot of the islands anyway. They are, you know, they're out in the middle of nowhere, and there's there's nowhere for lakes. Lakes don't really form, and uh, so they were just trapped on this island. Yeah. Also, like that, they said that of course there were fights, and they said the greatest solution to their fights wasn't creating some kind of hierarchy or conch or anything. They said take time out. Take it was t- it was timeouts worked. Also, <laughs> this story to me is written absolutely incorrectly. For a small amount of time, over a hundred years before this. Chickens were a food source to a tribe that left this island. And for a hundred years, chickens ruled this island. And there was not a sadder day than the day that six kids washed up on the shore of this island. For generations, that was a chicken-ruled island. Yes. We're just lucky chickens can't type. It would be an entirely different story. <laughs> a very different story there. Uh it's it's amazing because William Goldman, who wrote Lord of the Flies, right? No, Golding. Golding, yeah, Golding. He had like, you know, really bad upbringing. And uh, once again, in terms of cynicism, that's the argument you take, right? Sit around your dorm room and say, yeah, you put, you put young boys on an island. They're going to rip each other apart and create kings and do all of this. And um, that is taken as a given. And that is not an experiment. That's one person's imagination. And you actually run the experiment, which I'm saying we only ran once, right? I mean, we only know of that one case. But it is more real than Lord of the Flies. I was just so thrilled to read that. So absolutely thrilled. How old are they again? Uh, around 15, 16 years old. I think the youngest was 13. I think the youngest was 13, the oldest was 16. When I think about my son, I, I don't think he'd do as well, but that's not a point. <laughs> no, I mean, also that uh, the ship that saved them, they negotiated their um, you know, return back to where they were from. The, the king said, can we, can we do anything for you? And he goes, yeah, well, can you let me set up some lobster traps here? Can you let me kind of fish in here and set up my own little uh, thing and they, for for the country to grant outsiders permission to to set up any kind of fishing, and that thing was a big deal. But he hired the children as crew. He hired those kids. Yeah, and the idea that those because they had wanted they wanted to get out of the island. 
And the idea that those that like that this was not such a traumatizing experience that they never set foot on the ocean again, but went to go work on the ocean. Like I said that I re, I re, re, retold the story to my wife as I was reading it, and I said, and he hired the children as crew, <laughs> and we just started crying at each yeah. other. <laughs> I was like, what? I mean, that's it. Like that, the, the all of it because it's it's. It's not a book and it's not a movie because it's too perfect and it says too good of things about human beings that we just would kick it to the curb from an entertainment perspective. I'll tell you, if you wanted to put together a group of six people who could work well together, you wanted to do your retreat, put them on an island for 15 <laughs> months. <laughs> <laughs> they come back happy. That's your crew. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah, now, you want to do your Mars experiment. That's the one to do. Put those people on the Supreme Court now. And even the tragedy of like the, you know, in the article they referenced that that the guy who created Survivor credited Lord of the Flies for how he created that. And like Survivor was when they put reality television on this huge, huge uh, stage. And all these other reality television shows were created just to show how awful humans would be to each other. Uh under under the right circumstances, and it's just all of that's confirmation bias that we're that we're horrible to each other when we're not. Yeah, and when I did Celebrity Apprentice, you know, that's all they're trying to do is they're pushing it in that direction. Yeah, you know, it, it, it a lot of times it didn't work. I mean, D. Snyder and I weren't going to go at each other's throat. You know, uh, right. Lisa and I got along fine, and uh, uh, it uh, it's it's really strange. They're really they're really starting with the premise that people will uh, treat each other terribly, which the world around you does not confirm that. No. <laughs> no. Even better, these kids, they had been gone for 15 months. When they got back to the island, the guy whose boat they had stolen wanted to press charges. <laughs> <laughs> he said, throw those kids in jail. They had already had their funerals. Their families were known they were dead. They had had the funerals and everything. And this guy's, no, no, we're going to press charges and put them yeah. in jail. That boat owner loves Survivor. <laughs> he loves Survivor. He sold the story rights to TV in Australia and paid for the boat that the kids stole with that money. The guy that wanted to put him in jail? No, the guy who found them, the guy who saved them, brought them back, sold the story rights to Australia so that he could pay for the <laughs> boat that they had stolen. These are these are the greatest people ever. Now this happened in '65. Yeah, and they were 15. Yeah, so they are in their 60s now. They're our age. Yeah, these are kids are our age. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, have we? Uh, did they do? A, did the Guardian do a follow up on them? No, they. There were written records of the older captain and some of the other people involved from the press of that time, but they did not track down any of the children. Because uh, it'd be nice to talk to them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, if you want to get six guys to put together Ikea furniture, those are your guys. I I'll, I will go back to Nakua Lofa and talk to him if you want. <laughs> it's a great spot. <laughs> what is it like? But you were on the island they were marooned on? No, chicken no, Island? No, no. Mm. Uh, in the town where they they were from. Not the Chicken Island. <laughs> so, um, I got a book for you. Okay. Um, uh, this is a book report. I'm going to do more book reports, I think. Uh, All right. A book called Big Brother by Lionel uh, Shiver. Shiver? S-I-H-I-V-E-R. Lionel Shiver, who wrote um, 
uh, we got to talk about whatever that was with the serial killer child or the shooter child. Um, I've not read anything else by her. Uh, she is an incredible writer at a granular level. And, uh, uh, you know, the sentences, the word choices are perfect. She's funny. The characters are great. And all, also the overarching plot is wonderful. I've been reading all detective novels because that's what I'm trying to write now. So I was uh, kind of in that whole head. And this book um, really pulled me out of that in a beautiful way. Here's the premise. Woman in Iowa who grew up as the daughter of a uh, TV star that was on a show like Family Affair. One of these, it was a divorced show where there were three children on the show, but she was the real child. And she had an older brother, still has an older brother. And she's been in Iowa with her husband and her two stepchildren. And the uh, husband, her big brother, Edison, uh, who is the title character of the big brother, uh, calls up and says, can I come visit you in Iowa? And she hasn't seen him in two years. And uh, he arrives in and he is put on 200 pounds. So this skinny, successful jazz pianist uh, comes to stay with her, and he is too fat to sit in the chairs, uh, and she has to pretend she doesn't notice, and she doesn't comment on him being fat. He arrives off the uh, airplane in a wheelchair, and then she writes this incredible book, and I recommended it strongly to Cray Ray, uh, Ray Cronice, and to uh, Dr. Michael... Uh, Clapper and Gregor. Um, the diet he goes on, and this is the, the plot, is him losing 200 pounds. Uh, the diet he goes on is not physiologically um, as sound as they would like. Pigskin and raisins, isn't that what you said last show? <laughs> yeah, pretty much, yeah. Pig fat and raisins, yeah. But... Um, it's kind of like all these books we've read and all these people we've talked to, uh, Cray Ray, Clapper, and Gregor, are the prose version of this, and this is the poetry version of this. And I want to um, uh, read a couple of um, highlights I pulled out of this book and see how much this rings true to you. Not irresistible tastiness, but the very failure of food to reward is what drives us to eat more of it. The most sumptuous experience of ingestion is in between, remembering the last bite and looking forward to the next one. The actual eating part almost doesn't happen. Yeah. yeah. That stings, all right? Just, uh, I'm just going to say that that stings. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let me see. Uh, going into an ad, Matt. Shut up. <laughs> every time, every time... Every time I open the refrigerator, I feel like I'm staring into a library of self-help books with air conditioning. <laughs> That's beautiful. Wow. This is also not on the subject of fat, but just to show how beautiful her writing is. I was of two minds whether to encourage Tanner. Tanner is her stepson who wants to be a writer. About whether to encourage Tanner to follow his dream. Was a mother's role to preserve his hopes? or to confront him with the practicalities of survival on a planet with 7 billion people who all wanted to be famous. 
Whoa. Nice. Beautiful. Nice. Uh, this pervasive craving to be recognized as special amounted to an abdication of power, an outsourcing of your core responsibilities. And then she says about the United States, this is pretty shocking. Like cubism, futurism, or art deco, giantism was becoming a recognizable style in which the bulk of the population is drafted. (laughs) Personally, I think you eat so much because you don't enjoy your food, not because it's so satisfying you can't stop. That part's definitely true. Like with the food court stuff, nothing tastes as good as it smells when you walk by a place. No doubt about it. I wondered if that wasn't the answer to the mystery countrywide. It wasn't that eating was so great. It wasn't, but that nothing was great. Eating being merely okay still put it head and shoulders above everything else that was decidedly less than okay, in which case I was surrounded by millions of people incapable of deriving pleasure from anything whatsoever besides a jelly donut. Oof. That's heavy. (laughs) I never cheat. It's been quite a discovery that it's easier to be perfect than only a little bad. I'm starting to see the attraction of monasteries. It's less of a strain to be a full-fledged saint than to be a small fry sinner. Wow, nice. Uh, And then she, uh, she ends with her toward the end. She says, however, gnawing a deficiency, uh, satiety is worse. So here is the thought. We are meant to be hungry. Also, she has her brother, the big brother of the title, is a jazz musician who plays up uh, his successes and nobody cares. Like he talks about people he played with that no one heard of. And uh, I was taken with how dead on the music stuff was. She appears to be speaking as though she knows nothing about jazz, but she writes a character who is obsessed with jazz and knows everything. And the first person narrator doesn't understand jazz, but her brother does, which is seems like an odd writing lesson to have the perfect, pitch perfect um, voice on the jazz musician. So I looked her up on the old Wikipedia. <laughs> She's married to a professional jazz drummer. In- <laughs> <laughs> she might have asked him. A few questions about train <laughs> and bird and monk. Yeah. She might have asked him a thing or two. Uh, but well, we know incredible. he's unemployed, so that's what we know about him. So <laughs> they had the time. <laughs> um, uh, it's it's an amazing book because they go on a uh, diet where in one year he loses 200 pounds. Mm. And that description is going to ring true with everybody who went through Cray Ray. And I'm really hesitant about recommending it to Cray Ray, Clapper, and Gregor, because I know they're going to go crazy over the um, over the science and the technique and the discussion of protein. But uh, I hope what I've read here um, will let you know that the poetry of it, the way she's right in the heart of a country where everybody's become fat and sick, is uh, 
pretty powerful. And also I'm reacting because it was so, so, so wonderful to, um, to read a book that, um, wasn't a detective mystery. You know, I've been watching with my, with my mother-in-law, I watch all these detective shows on TV. You know, she's all Acorn and BBC, you know. Yeah. So she's, and they're really fun to watch with her. But I realize that all I'm thinking about is finding a body by the lake and then finding out who, who actually did it. <laughs> in a witty way. So this book being about uh, the, the mysteries of the heart and the mysteries of humanity really, really uh, spoke to me in a really beautiful way. And I'd also read, of course, the pandemic book by uh, Gregor and the uh, global warming book, the climate change book by Lawrence Krauss. And uh, if you want your mellow harshed, uh, those are the books to read. And this is also, uh, I can't describe it as anything but brutal. I mean, when you, uh, also, uh, I think I need to say this. The weight that they give of the fat guy is, I believe, the weight I was. Mm. Uh, now I'm six foot seven. He's depicted as whatever, 5'10. Uh, so there's a difference there, but he's, he, he comes in at 387. And I believe I was close to that. I might not have been quite that, but I was with, I was within 20 pounds of that, certainly. So he has to get down to 167. 163 is his goal. That's his target weight for a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it's, it's pretty interesting in how it deals with fame, uh, how it deals with being special, how it deals with success, how it deals with family. It's... Uh, uh, this is someone who can really think. And I'm going back to writing, you know, the fourth draft of my detective novel. <laughs> but I don't have them finding a body by the lake, so you're safe in that. <laughs> There's no, it's no bodies of water. It takes place in the Mojave. Say the name of the book again for, for anybody. Uh, Big Brother by Lionel Shiver. Lionel Shiver, Big Brother. She's a wicked famous writer. I mean, the fact that we don't know about her is just that we're stupid. Because she's written like 15 books and they all win big awards. And the, uh, you know, the, the, the book's been mo- turned into a movie with big stars in it. And it's all very heavy and beautiful. But this book I'd never heard about. Someone told me about it. And I, I read the damn thing. And I actually did something I've uh, very rarely done, which is uh, I went to bed. Slept for two hours, woke up thinking about the book, went back and sat for two hours and finished it, then went back to bed. Oh, wow. So it's not only keeping you awake, it's making you wake up and finish reading it. Wow. But I think just these uh, these these uh, highlights that I pulled out will show you that she's a uh, crazy, crazy good writer. Crazy good. And uh, also for those of us, and there's a lot of us that listen to the show that um, think about weight loss and fat and what that means and how we get into that, how we get into that situation. I'll also tell you that it, uh, it helped me a lot. Uh, the description she has of eating slower and tasting your food and seeing what you really enjoy. Before she goes on this hardcore diet, she goes out for her last supper. And she eats a piece of salmon. And the description is wonderful because she talks about how she doesn't just shovel it in like I'm eating salmon, but she actually chews each mouthful 
and thinks about it and what's disappointing her and what, when it's grainy and it's this and it's that. And uh, boy, once you start tasting your food, eating less becomes easier. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, I, uh, I, am a, uh, I am a glutton. I eat fast. I eat furious. I try to eat as much as I possibly can. When I have a food that I like, I'm, uh, I don't want to be full. I want to keep shoveling it down. Uh, and, um, all of these, all of these things built into us, it's good to be aware of those. Um, yeah. So I just, I just wanted to point that out. I, I like giving book reports. Um, Let's get more book reports. <laughs> a, uh, oh, I got to read the books. That's the problem. Books. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Small but I, you know, I, I try to read. I'm now reading like three hours a day, so I get through them in pretty good time. Hey, we uh, uh, the world uh, I forgot to bring us up off air for the outline, but I think uh, the world lost another aristocrat yeah. this week. Oh, yeah, Fred Willard. Oh, yeah. Boy, Fred was good. And speaking of tying it all back together... Um, I'm going to go back on everything I said <laughs> because uh, Fernwood Tonight, yep, which can only be seen as parody and satire, yeah, and irony. Martin Mull and Fred Willard doing Fernwood Tonight are just creating all comedy in the '80s and '90s. Yep, I mean you do not have Letterman without Fernwood Tonight. You certainly don't have Colbert. Uh, you don't have John Stewart. It all comes from Martin Mull and Fred Willard, who was in who was in The Aristocrats and who was wonderful. Fred Willard was fascinating because um, we uh, we did, you know, he's very famous for improvisation. Yeah. And in, in all the uh, Chris Guest movies. And we went over to shoot uh, Fred Willard doing um, The Aristocrats, doing the joke for our movie where... 100 comedians tell the same joke, the same filthy joke. And uh, Fred Willard was out by his pool. He, he greeted us and went out to his pool with his ass caught and his smoking jacket. And we got our cameras set up, which, you know, with us took two minutes and no lighting. He's outside. And uh, he, uh, he began doing his version with me asking him questions about the whole thing. And he did it. And while he was shooting... Uh, his wife yelled from the kitchen to ask him if he wanted a drink, and he answered her back and then went on. And uh, we finished, and it was great. It was fabulous. And I said, uh, want to take another run at it? And he said, okay. And uh, okay, let's go. And I asked him the question, and he did it again. <laughs> and at the same line, his wife yelled the same question about the drink. <laughs> and he answered the same way. And he finished it. And it reminded uh, me very, very much of uh, when Billy Gibbons of ZZ Top told me he went down to, um, to record. I think it was Eliminator. They recorded in Nashville with the Nashville Cats. I think I've told this story before, but it's, uh, it's apropos. Uh, and so Billy and, and the band, Billy, Dusty, Frank, uh, with these Nashville cats, do one of the tunes. They give them the changes and they, they do the tune. And they finish it and it was great. And Billy says, okay, let's try another one. And the uh, leader of the band says to him, uh, what do you want different this time through? And Billy says, I don't know, let's just try it again. 
He said, well, if you don't tell us to do something different, it's going to be note for note the same. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was Fred Willard. He knew the gag he wanted to do, which means when you look at him with Christopher Guest doing improvisation, it's a little different than what people think of as improvisation. Definitely. Definitely. It's, 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 it's kind of like a, almost like a magician more than yeah. a true improvisation. Yeah. But uh, the irony thing, though, he, from an acting perspective, from playing character perspective, he did not play irony. He I mean, never winked. No, never, I, I mean, no he, wink, he, there was no sense of it. No. I mean, he steals the show of uh, Best in Show as the announcer of the dog uh, competition by being relentlessly curious as a guy who has no business announcing a dog of it. And all <laughs> the comedy comes from him just having genuine questions about dogs to the dog expert. And it is just awesome. Is it the difference here in that it's entirely devoid of cynicism? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Part of the reason why you can't see the difference between it's, it's hard to figure out where the line is between Fred Willard, the character and Fred Willard, the person. Well, you know, Fred Willard went undercover and never came out. That's the part that, you know, Martin Mull explained to me that's so crazy. Mm -hmm. You go over Fred Willard's house. His wife is dead now, too, but we met his wife. And they are living as a um, uh, Midwestern uh, Corn Belt couple, right? And that is the way he is. And all the knickknacks on the shelf and everything are just that. And I talked to Martin Mull, and Martin Mull said, oh, no, no, he was a Lenny Bruce <laughs> kind of rat-a-tat stand-up comedian mm -hmm. doing really edgy stuff. And then sometime in the 60s, he decided to go into character and never come out. Is it what he's saying there is, aren't people hilarious and isn't that lovely? Yeah. Yeah. And his wife yeah. does it too. So when it's like, he's the character in that. And Martin Mull said, <laughs> doing improvisation with Fred Willard, which of course, Martin Mull has done as much as anybody. Cause although he did all those movies with Christopher Guest, Fernwood tonight and America tonight were nightly shows. So he was doing it constantly. And Martin Mull said, I love this. He said, doing improvisation with Fred Willard is like following someone in your car who doesn't use turn signals. <laughs> he said, there's that thing you get in improv where someone makes a little bit of eye contact or holds just a little bit longer and you kind of know where they're going and you kind of know what it's about and you kind of know they got something. He said, Fred gives you nothing. <laughs> Fred is just there in the scene doing what he's doing, and it's completely airtight. You know, uh, you know, my children love Jack Black, and Jack Black is a fabulous guy. I've only met him once, but he's wonderful. But Jack Black in every character, you always see some Jack Black underneath it. Yeah. You know, there's always some wink going on. But Fred Willard, man, he would not... I mean, you could waterboard him, and he wouldn't tell you he got the joke. <laughs> you know, he just did not let anyone know he was in on the joke. Nope. Just, just completely, completely fabulous. And also, 
so kind and so gentle and so not smarmy. And he, uh, he came to our show not too, too long ago. I mean, by not too, too long ago, I'm talking about my new time frame, but probably 10, 12 years ago. And uh, came backstage and just kind and sweet and um, focused and just and just brilliant. Um, thanks so much for bringing up Fred Willard. Yeah, yeah. Because he will be missed. And I believe uh, his death not related to COVID-19 as far as we can tell. No, I said natural causes. Yeah. 86. So 86 years old. Yeah. Well, Fred Willard was uh, so funny and I was so shocked to work with him on the aristocrats and see that he just had uh, you know and he he may have told probably told his wife interrupt me on this line I got this bit I want to do and he probably did improvise it the first time through and then just had it nailed yeah 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 you know what I mean there's there's that way of looking at it too no for sure that, yeah so uh, anyway, he didn't. Uh, Fred Willard is uh, is an inspiration to all of us, and it's really nice to dig around in the um, in the cynicism, irony, satire thing. You know, um, uh, Gene Shepard, who the radio guy uh, who wrote um, a Christmas Story. Um, Gene Shepard was really really interesting because Gene Shepard, uh, I saw him speak when I was in high school. I got to the college. He was doing a class at the college and I snuck into it at UMass. And um, I did that a lot in high school. And uh, Gene Shepard said a sentence I still remember so deeply. He said, don't make fun of anything unless you love it. Which is uh, maybe what we're talking about with Fred Willard. Yes, uh, I mean I, I think it's important. I mean that's the whole back when those when we we talked about this with roasts. Uh, the key to roast was the love of everyone had for yeah. each other, and if you don't yeah. truly love the but person you know, you're, you're making fun of. Stephen Colbert does not love the right wing Stephen Colbert character. No, and I think that's why he was also happy to get rid of it. Yeah, yeah, uh, and uh, I think that Fred Willard. I think probably every character he's ever played, he's loved. Oh, yeah. And even that whole crew. I mean, the whole Christopher Guest crew, uh, Catherine yeah. O'Hara and those guys. I mean, they just don't flinch. And then I don't think there's nothing about Christopher Guest that wanted them to make fun of anyone they're portraying. Right. Yeah. It's uh, it's pretty beautiful stuff. And uh, good. So that's... Uh, that's, uh, that's Oh, someone... I want to throw this in. Someone says that, they, that he and his fiance are fighting over... Um, they're arguing over last names. Uh, they're about to get married. He thinks she should traditionally take his last name. She wants to keep uh, the name she had, and he wants advice from me. Um, my wife and I did talk about it, um, and our solution was to take her uh, family name, which is Zoltan, and use that as our son's first name. And uh, so we did not do a hyphenate. I will tell you the most interesting one of these solutions that I know, which is fabulous, is when Bob Corn Revere married his wife, uh, Sigrid Fry. Uh, they did not want to hyphenate for their children because Fry Corn is stupid and Corn Fry is stupid. Um, <laughs> and they had both published 
So the question was not what names they would use because she had to publish under Fry and he published under Corn. So they picked another name, Revere. They both hyphenated, the children don't. So their children all have the last name Revere and she is Sigrid Fry Revere and he is uh, Bob Corn Revere. And uh, that's a pretty nice solution. By the way, Bob Corn Revere is doing a thing Thursday morning on Zoom, uh, which you can f probably find. Uh, like 10 o'clock in the morning, Bob Corn Revere on Zoom, some lawyer's thing. Everybody's welcome to. They're going to be talking about censorship and comedy. Oh, interesting. Lenny Bruce and all sorts of stuff. And I told them that I wanted to come and be in on the Zoom audience. And he said, is it okay if we ask you a question? And I, I hope they don't, but I, <laughs> I'm not going to say no. Because uh, I really want to hear when Bob Corn Revere talks about uh, uh, censorship I always learn a ton. So I wish I had information to tell you to watch it. But if you look, Bob, uh, Robert, Corn Revere, uh, a lawyer in D.C., and what Zoom thing he's doing. Uh, actually, I can find it. I'm going to find it and tell you this is important enough that I uh, that I should do it. It's called, it's Thursday, May 21st at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 p.m. Pacific. No laughing matter. Comedy, the Constitution, and cancel culture. It's uh, Bob Cornrevere, uh, Professor uh, Sophia M McLennan, Penn State author, is satire saving our nation. Um, mockery in American politics, and it's all on uh, Zoom. I guess, I don't know if I'm supposed to give the meeting ID or what I'm supposed to do. That might be um, that might be something that's only for me. I don't know. But uh, you can find that on Zoom, No Laughing Matter, Comedy of the Constitution, and Cancel Culture. And you know, we've gone really long. That was Penn Sunday School. It's my fault because of the quip ad. Cha-cha-cha. You become naked. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, the reason really was that we we hadn't given Fred Willard his proper proper respect. We had to do that. And coming up next week or the week after? Week after. Next week. Next week is Dr. Gregor? I think so. Oh, boy. You know, we love you. We love you. Hey, everybody. Jason Ellis here from the Jason Ellis Show podcast, reminding you that my podcast, new episodes every Wednesday, downloadable, where all podcasts are available. Come see my friends, Michael and Kevin, as we talk to you about what's awesome, what sucks, fitness, fighting, parenting, life, spin kicks, LGBTQ community, how to defend yourself against the shock if it attacks you out of nowhere, and much, much more. So come join us. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.